Isn't it nice to see you in the person? It is very nice to see you in the person, just over there with your floppy hair, just out of tweaking reach, although I might get up later and give you a little tweak. Ah, shucks. Welcome, listener, to Sustainable number 42. Very exciting. Uh, this week, we've got a theme, and it's a theme all about yerp. <laughs> Yeah, yep, 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 yep. We are going to be talking about European food, including European Weetabix and European Cadbury's and other such nonsense. We're going to be talking about, you know, you know when you you want to send a card to somebody, they can often be in in Europe, can't they? So so we're going to be talking about a card company. Yes. Yes. That, that from where yes very yes good. yes and and we're going to be talking about an extraordinary tale of an individual who went to Europe just to prove a point and I I tell you now listener I'm angry about that I'm really really angry so uh, we are your friendly little environment podcast all about why people and the planet often don't talk any sense and whether we can help um oh, I forgot to say Dave we've got a guest We've got a special guest coming up. So luckily, it's not just me and Dave banging on about Europe. It's someone who knows something. So I'm not going to tell you who it is, but watch this space. Um, so the usual disclaimers, we do work for environmental charities, but everything that you are about to hear is very much spat out of the mouths of me and him. So don't take it up with anyone, not the Brussels bureaucrats or anyone else. If you don't like what we say, just take it up with us. And preferably, don't even do that. Just turn off. Eh? Very good. Uh, Allons-y! Allez, we go! Encore! Reasons to be cheerful! to be cheerful we begin this week's bulletin with some good news um which is well what is it dave you tell me <laughs> yeah very good nice <laughs> presenting skills there well, well i'll do it then shall I? Okay. Well, my laptop's at, at least 90 degrees from where my eyes are so i can't be bothered to read it out what it is is this a thing has been launched and the thing is called environmentalists for europe Woohoo! And it is a bunch of greenies, including hairy bird spotter Bill Oddie, uh, ancient venerable environmentalist and dad of Boris Johnson, Stanley Johnson, and a load of politicians. And what they've done is they've got together and they've said, we like Europe because it protects the planet and it saves the trees. And everyone else who likes Europe, who likes the planet and the trees, should vote to stay in it. And of course, what's going on there is that pretty soon, maybe as soon as June, the UK will be voting on whether or not it wants to leave Europe. And that's all very scary and alarming, isn't it? Hmm, it is a bit. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the 
This group of people is claiming that an awful lot of people actually care about the stuff that uh, Europe does for the environment. And with all the groups that are, uh, are in part of this E4E, uh, what is it, Environmentalists for Europe it's called, isn't it? Uh, there's 7 million people represented apparently. So if all of those people can be reached and said, come on chaps, you know, this ain't cricket, get out your voting, get your dabber out, like in the bingo, and uh, is it dabber or dibber? Anyway, uh, (laughs) moving on, yeah, collectively there is an awful lot of people represented by these organisations who could, the theory goes, be moved to vote to stay in Europe when we face that inevitable referendum in a few months. So yeah, we're about at the limit of everything we know about Europe, so what we thought we'd better do is get in an expert, and who better than somebody who was at the launch of the Environmentalist for Europe event, a uh, very, very clever and interesting Welshman called Sam Lowe. So we're here with Sam Lowe. Hello, Sam. Sorry, just finishing my glass of water. Hello, Ollie. Hello. Hi. Do you want to explain to our dear listeners who you are and why you're relevant to this old Europe thing? Uh, my name is Sam. I run the trade work at Friends of the Earth historically, that's what I did. But as of a couple of months ago, I've been heading up our work on Brexit, or leaving the EU, as it is known. Uh, So I get very confused about the whole Europe debate, because frankly, I don't know whether it's evil or brilliant on a whole load of issues. Um, But I guess the one I care about most is the environment. Uh, So is it, it sounds like you think that overall... Europe is a good thing for the environment. Is that right? Is that what you think? Yes, I think on balance, I know that you're probably going to come at me with lots of examples of things it's done wrong. And I will happily admit that there are examples of things Europe has done wrong or has not been great at doing. However, shock, horror, nature and the environment doesn't really care about natural national boundaries, which is weird. I mean, you'd think that air pollution in in Germany would get to the border and just... Go no, nope, nope. not welcome as here. Far as I go. I've, I've heard they're thinking about cancelling <laughs> Schengen. I'm staying. I'm staying put until someone's checked my passport. But no, that doesn't happen. So actually, dealing with these problems at an EU level has been uh, quite successful on the whole. Except, right? Yeah, fine. Except, but come on, Dave. Uh, we're an island, right? So a lot of the stuff that you just said surely doesn't apply to us as an island. Like our nature is our nature. Why do we need some Europe people telling us about our nature? But no, I, that, that's what you've just said is nonsense. Um, our nature is fully linked in <laughs> with, with European Nonsense, nature. Huh? <laughs> Migratory birds, animals, air pollution obviously is a big issue. We share fish, which I'm sure you're going to bring up at some point. We share oceans, well, the ocean in, in our case. Um, yeah, and I, I think so. I was at the event that I think you've been talking about the other day, and Bill Oddie was talking about how uh, Europe, in terms of its actual natural environment, is a very small area. So what one, one country does really does impact across the board and I just wanted to name drop that I was at an event with uh, Bill Oddy which was what this Bill Oddy That, that, that's that's the Bill Oddie I was talking about, yes. Very, very strange bit of music for a very strange man. Um, Wonderful man. I won't, I won't hear a bad word said. Um, I think the the argument that Dave was making has certainly has some merit. Like, obviously, birds fly around all over the place and, you know, fishes in the seas around um, Britain. 
go to seas around other places. But surely the land-based stuff, animals and plants that are landlocked, I guess, uh, shouldn't necessarily be ruled over by somebody making up rules in a different country, should they? I'm unsure what you mean by ruled over. Okay, all right. So, you know, well. so, so, so to be clear, when rules are made at the European level, we are very much a part of that. We are one of the 28 member states and we help make those rules. So, for example, the, you were talking about nature and uh, landlocked nature. The rules that govern that, the Birds and Habitats Directives, collectively known as the Nature Directives, were actually constructed by someone from the UK who uh, you, may have, you may have heard of his son, uh, one uh, Boris Johnson. Well, his dad, Stanley Johnson, was at the European Commission, actually uh, start put in motion this, this batch of legislation that, that is really rather wonderful. It has a list of protected species that everyone across the EU has to take into account, and then uh, different pockets across the EU of um, nature, of reserves, of habitats. And the way they've done it is that they've looked at the entire EU and said, what might be common, say, in the UK, say peat bogs, but is uncommon across the rest of the EU, and how much of that do we need to preserve so as to not have any further habitat loss? And the aim is hopefully in the future to make them even better so that we get habitat restoration. Why don't you trust, then, British people to look after their own peat bogs? Why do we need... Why does it follow? So this is the argument that I hear, right? Why does it follow? Oh, God, these bloody foreigners. I can do better than some foreigner telling me to look after my peat bogs. Surely if we leave Europe, we can just look after our own damn peat bogs. Why do we need Brussels telling us to do it? I think, I think there's some merit in that argument. I, I'd say often the, deli- the people delivering that argument are rather compromised by the fact that they're often the same people who deny climate change and fought against those regulations in the first place. But if we do just take it at face value, could the UK, post-leaving the EU, apply really strict regulations and really decide we care about nature and the environment? Yes, of course it could. Would it be as effective doing it individually? Maybe not, because as I've been saying, it makes sense to work on these things collectively. But is it likely? I think I think no. So if we're still talking about nature, so George Osborne has explicitly come out and said that he thinks the nature directives get in the way of business. He then commissioned a review to look into this, which found he was wrong. Um, You have to actually look at the policy environment we're in and say, is it likely that we would leave and then all of a sudden become the green man of Europe? I think no. And we'll make sure that the gold plating of EU rules on things like habitats aren't placing ridiculous costs on British business. (laughs) Planning laws... I I realise by bringing forward this environmental argument I'm not going to convince the person who ardently had wanted to leave for the last 20 30 years that who I'm hoping to speak to are the environmentalists people who I generally spend a lot of my time with who might be on the fence for really legitimate reasons such as the whole Greece crisis the refugee crisis there's lots of reasons to be disillusioned with EU the UK's place in the EU our place in the world just as just as week the uh, in the face of all of these air pollution scandals the EU voted to let car manufacturers do more polluting cars so, so yeah ex- exactly and go team <laughs> well go go team led by the UK on yeah, that right. yeah so so what I would say is when you do look at it and you look at the bad things as well, you also have to see what was the role of the UK government in this and they don't really advertise a lot of the things they get up to in the EU. But I would say that when it comes to the environment, as a rule of thumb, if something bad's happened, the UK were probably behind it. I think you can persuade 
environmentalists to care about Europe by explaining all these benefits that they've had for quite a long time now and have forgot where they came from, explaining that they came from there. And not necessarily that were we to leave, all these things would instantly go, but just that there's a lot of risk involved with leaving and there's a lot of uncertainty. So on, on the birds and habitats and nature directives, if we were to leave, those would completely go. Even if we did a sort of Norway and stayed sort of in, those aren't part of that agreement. But when it comes down to the EU referendum, will it be one on the environment potentially not but will it be one on turnout i think yes because i think there's a big big core institution block of people who really really want to leave and then there's a lot of quite indifferent people who if they were to get to the voting booth would likely vote to stay in and i think when it comes to the environment that's where we have a role a lot of those indifferent people do care about the environment uh but it is a really big issue and i think one of the things that really struck me about it is that i so i work for friends of the earth i work on the environment every day and I didn't really don't want to wake up the day after the referendum thinking we didn't make an issue of that and now we're out. And now all of these things we took for granted for the last 30 years, I'm now going to have to spend the next two to three years campaigning just to ensure that they remain. That strikes me as a colossal waste of my time when we're facing these huge issues around the world that we were actually in some cases starting to make a little bit of progress on. So is that how it's, it's going to happen then? Should we leave... It's not a question of everything that did apply to us is now torn up, doesn't matter, we start from scratch. It's that we then look at each of these things and decide whether or not we want well, to no, carry this, on. This is, this is the really big question. We don't know what out looks like. There's different options. So to get technical, there's the Euro, uh, we could join the European Economic Area, which is essentially what Norway is in. So this means that you still get access to the single market, but you have to apply quite a lot of the rules that Europe produces, the EU produces, but you don't have as you don't have the same say. You're not you don't have members of the EU Parliament. You're not on the council. You still do get to have some input. It's it's untrue to say that they just get it by fax or something like that. But so if we were in that scenario, a lot of the rules may stay the same because they're to do with the single market access. But stuff like the Birds and Habitats Directive, that's not part of the EEA agreement. So that would go, and then we still have our natural protections. We have national na- national po- uh, policy to protect different sites, but they're far weaker than the European legislation. The European legislation on protecting birds and habitats is the strongest in the world by quite a long way. But then the other option is that we leave completely. So we cut off all ties from the EU. We don't jo- jo- join the European Economic Area. We're talking back to the seas, rule Britannia, free trade the British way, our way. We start negotiating these different free trade agreements around the world. But in that case, we still have to sell into Europe. So some of our product standards, different things, will still have to make it conform to EU rules. They'll remain a bigger market to us. They'll get to dictate that. But it won't be UK-wide policy. Sam, thank you very, very much for coming to speak to us and telling us all about Europe. Um, and good luck with your campaigning on it. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they should do that? Uh, they can go to, uh, actually, for, on Twitter, at Samuel Mark Lowe, Mark with a C. <laughs> very nice. All right, cheers, Sam. Sustainable of the week. 
So, Sustainable of the Week. This is the section where we have a little look to see who's been talking nonsense, who has been spouting egregious eco-guff. And I don't come much more egregious than the Environment Secretary, Liz Truss. So here's what happened. So she is the DEFRA Secretary. Do you know what DEFRA stands for? Yes, I do, Dave. It is the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Ooh, it's like the archers, isn't it? When, you know, I can't think of any archers characters, but when they're all sleeping with people they shouldn't in the countryside. That's my rural affairs gag. Oh, it's all very good. Yes, sorry, I wasn't. Best when you have to explain them. Um, So, now, I had thought that the job of a department that was looking after environment, food and rural affairs was to make sure that we had a healthy environment, that we could eat some food uh, and that there was some rural stuff (laughs) with which we could have affairs. Um, Turns out that's not what the department does. Instead, the department is all about selling things to the rest of the world Mm. because we are British. Mm. Now, uh, Liz Truss has got some form on this. Um, There was a wonderfully bad speech that she gave I think at the Conservative Party conference last year, where she got exceptionally excited about selling uh, apples to the rest of the world. And also this weird thing about pigs in China. Was that pig semen or is that something yeah. else? We're just selling bucket loads of pictures <laughs> to the Chinese, yes? Yeah, it really, really happened, which in light of future revelations, she might want to uh, <laughs> might want to potentially erase from her CV, but she can't because we're still here. Anyway... Freshly uh, emboldened by that success, uh, she has now given a speech in which she has been launching the Great British Food Unit. Now, uh, sadly, this isn't a tent uh, in which Paul Hollywood and Mary Berry lick their fingers and say, isn't that delicious? Uh, this too what? <laughs> Allegedly. Um, it's it's a thing. Uh, I don't even know what it is. What what is the Great British Food Unit? It is a load of babble. That's what it is. <laughs> um, now, where to start? Well, the first thing to start with is this is how uh, Liz Trust described it. Where's Arabella? Hello, Arabella. Hello, Dave. Um, could you tell us, please, how Liz Trust describes the Great British Food Unit? We are turbocharging our food exports. Now, I've I've turbocharged a few exports of food in my time, uh, not not least after one too many beers at the Arsenal game the other night. Uh, but I don't think that's really what she's she's talking about here, is it? What? I don't bloody well know what she's talking about. Also, I've been looking at this now for a while. I've got the speech that she gave in which she said she was turbocharging our food exports. Um, and then I've looked at the press release that was issued by the Department of Exporting Food and Rural Affairs, <laughs> um, the 
other day in which it launched the Great British Food Unit and it talked about turbocharging our food exports. And I scrolled down and I read some stuff about all these British companies like Weetabix, which is owned by the Chinese, and Cadbury's, which is owned by the Americans. Weetabix is owned by the Chinese? Yes. Is nothing sacred? Apparently not. No, it's owned by the Chinese. Um, and yeah, Cadbury's owned by the Americans. Um, and Nestle, which is bloody Swiss and has always been Swiss, as far as I can work out, but is now apparently a British food. The accent is a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? <laughs> the accent on the E. Well, that's probably not English. <laughs> and I scrolled down, I couldn't really find what this Great British Food Unit is going to be, other than a bunch of people sitting around talking to foreigners about why they want to come and buy British food, which isn't blinking well British in the first place. It's amazing. Yeah, you touched on Weetabix there, and um, there, there's a lot of babble in this speech, um, and we're just going to pick out some of it. One is this wonderful, wonderful phrase where, um, well, Arabella, what did she say about Weetabix? UK breakfast cereal giant Weetabix, a success story for foreign investment. Yeah, that's right. So so there she's, she's saying how, how great British food is and talking about the UK success story Weetabix. Um, but then saying it's only successful because someone else has bought it. It's like, that doesn't make it a success story, does it? Well, I suppose it does, but it does mean that you, if your job is to sell British stuff abroad, then don't choose something that isn't British anymore, right? <laughs> it's already been sold abroad. Yes, yes. You're absolutely, yeah, Weetabix was so lovely and yummy and successful that the Chinese brought it. Therefore, you can't call it British food anymore, can you? Oh, and where's that, where's that bit? Where's, what did that bloke named after the footballer do? Ian Wright. Ian, Ian Wright, right, CB, right, right. Uh, CBE, Director General of the Food and Drink Federation. He said, oh God, he said this. UK food and drink is a major national asset and the envy of the world. Now, I don't know if you've ever spoken to anybody who didn't grow up in this country and grow, grew up somewhere like, I don't know, let's say France. Yeah. For instance, which is close, and ask them, which of all the world's cuisine do you think is the envy of the world? Uh, I I haven't asked that question, I have to say, but I'd imagine very few, were they asked, would say the UK. I mean, this is the country that brought you deep-fried Mars bar. It brought you gruel. I don't know if we actually brought gruel, but probably did. It brought you turnips, for God's sake. (laughs) This is not... I mean, we've got some nice restaurants. French restaurants. Yeah, but they're not English, exactly. Unless you're talking about, you know, Harry Ramsden's or The Little Chef. Actually, I will make an exception for The Little Chef. That is the envy of the world. And look, there's something else going on here. So this is all hard. Uh-huh. Isn't this babble? Isn't this funny? You know, okay, the British government is trying to set to get other countries to come and buy our stuff. All right, fine. But since when is that the bloody job of the Environment Department, right? We've been talking for the last, what, two or three episodes now, or indeed longer than that, about the parlous state of stuff, right? I go back from my holiday and you reeled off all the things that had gone wrong, like all the flooding, right? Like the fact that all the orcas are dying in the water and stuff like that. That's the responsibility the environment there's a clue in the fact that their name is the environment right (laughs) and since when does even the blinking environment department have to be about economic growth what is going on like you i scrolled to the end of this speech uh just to see 
you know, what the conclusion was. I thought, you know, sure, there'll be a load of blather. Ministerial speech, fine, you just say some nice stuff about everyone. But I was like, conclusion, what's that going to be? And the conclusion, I thought, might be that's why we're building a resilient uh, food system or, you know, an environmentally friendly farming identity or something. I don't know, some blather like that. But it didn't say that. It said, together, we can create the smarter, leaner state that will deliver the results for Britain. That's not your job. Your job isn't to cut down the state. Your job is to protect the environment. Say something about the environment. Inhofe of the week. So, Inhofe time. This is the section of the show named after the senator in America called Jim Inhofe, who is a wazzock. Oh, that's a word I haven't heard for a long time. <laughs> wazzock you may use. Wazzock I like. What is a wazzock? Define a wazzock. Oh, it's like a penis or a douchebag or a shit. <laughs> the, other, the other words I've used to describe Jim Inhofe, which I apparently can't use. He's a wazzock. He's a wazzock because he thinks there's no climate change just because there's still snow. So we named a section of the show after him and we put people in Inhofe Corner if they've been similarly wazzocky. And this week, the wazzocks are those lovely, lovely people at Card Factory, aren't they, Dave? What have they done? Why are they in Inhofe Corner? Oh, yeah. Clever, clever Card Factory. (laughs) Clever, clever people making their clever cards, sitting around going, we're so clever. And you know what they did? Right, we talked way back in episode 25, I think, but don't quote me on that, about the plastic bag charge, Mm. which has come out in... The UK and has actually been really, really successful. What with in the three months since it was introduced, Tesco saying that carrier bag usage has fallen by eighty percent because you have to pay five p eight zero. I just think that's so cool and depressing. We didn't do it before, but very cool. Basically, everyone's getting on with it and it's fine unless you're card yeah, factory. Not, not everyone. <laughs> not everyone, Dave. They have chopped off the handles from all of their plastic bags, which presumably were sitting around in their warehouse, and they've worked out that that means they're not classified as plastic bags anymore, and so they can give them away for free. <laughs> they called up the Department for Exporting Food really aggressively, otherwise known as DEFRA, um, and they said, so, um, you just, well, we're not saying we've done this, but if, if all the plastic bag handles fell off all the plastic bags, would they still have to pay that 5p charge? And DEFRA said... Probably not. Fair enough. No, probably not. You can you can give them away for free. And Card Factory said, brilliant. All right. Give them away for free that, then. That'll be all. <laughs> Thanks very much. And presumably the, the guy taking the call at DEFRA hung up and sat there for a while scratching his head. And he said, bugger. <laughs> that's, when, that's when you want, you just yearn for somebody in government to be a human being. Because, okay, sure, there is this loophole. But you hope that when when that phone call comes in and some silly little card company goes, oh, you know, can we get around this thing? You just want the government to go, no, of course you can't. That's just not the spirit of what's intended. We're trying to stop plastic bags going everywhere. So just by getting rid of the handle doesn't mean we're going to stop plastic bags everywhere. So don't be such an idiot. Go away and slams the phone down. But they don't. They go, oh, it wasn't in my spreadsheet. So, yeah, I suppose that's fine. 
And you remember, I told you this was going to happen when we talked about this back in episode 25 or whenever it was, when we got Arabella to read out the list of things that aren't plastic bags. And it took still so going. Long. Yeah, it took so long. I had to fade her out in the middle and bring her back up two minutes later and she was still going. And this is exactly what's happened is people have gone, oh, we can get around that. We can game it. We can pretend that this card we're selling is some meat or some razor blades. <laughs> or a goldfish. Or a goldfish. Um, and that's what's happened here. They've gone, oh, you say it has to have handles to be a plastic Plastic bag, check this out. Contaminated by soil such as potatoes or plants. Unwrapped blades, including axes. Schadenfreude of the week. So, Schadenfreude time. We haven't had a chance to do this for a while, but it's a section. Well, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? Someone who's been a bit of an awful person or group of awful people has got their comeuppance uh, and frankly we need some of this because we've been terribly irritated and vexed and shouty so far so tell us what has happened Dave. All the oil companies are going bust. Yay! <laughs> sort of. Um, oh. <laughs> so what's happened is this uh, in the at the end of last week most of them have announced how much money they made in the year 2015, which was, startlingly enough, last year. And uh, it makes for, depending on how aggrieved you feel at oil companies in general, some fairly cheery reading. So, brace yourself all. Now, braced. BP um, had lost $5.2 billion dollars in 2015, on account primarily of that mahusive great $10 billion payout they had to give to all the people in the Gulf of Mexico who they covered in oil back in the Deepwater Horizon thingy. $5.2 billion. They lost, they lost $5.2 billion. However, to put that in context, the year before, they made $8 billion profit. So, wow. I know. Massive, right? So that tells you two things. Firstly, it's been a bad year. Secondly, most years are very good. So (laughs) let's not get out of the violins just yet. Shell, their profits fell by 80%. So they still, didn't I know, they still made something like $2 billion profit. Right. But that's a lot less than what they made before, right? If you're an oil company, only making about $2 billion profit is a seriously bad year. Yeah. Well, I can imagine if you were planning on making $10 billion profit, then then this is terrible news. And presumably they've had to, well, what were they had to do? They had to cut loads of jobs or scrap loads of investments or what? I mean, how does this actually affect them other than on Microsoft Excel? So we've talked before about Shell pulling out of the Arctic because it's all got very expensive. And you said, hooray, it's because the environmentalists have won and you danced around with daisies. And I said, no, it ain't, mate. It's You're misremembering because... that slightly. But... <laughs> I said, no, it ain't, mate. It's because the oil price is dropping and so it doesn't make any sense for them to go in there anymore. And that's what's happening is they're not spending money on going into the expensive stuff. And instead, they're trying to sweat the assets that they've got. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now that is the first and last time you will be saying sweating the assets on this podcast, okay? Anti-Inhoff of the Week. So Anti-Inhoff of the Week, this is the section of the show that we only sometimes do, where we make space for the people who are not 
Inhoffs, uh, the people who are the nice and friendly, fluffy people who make everything a better place, who have done something good and worthwhile. Um, and we would like to talk this week, oh, look at your face, we would like to talk this week about a hero, a consumer hero, who has proved that it is cheaper to start in Sheffield and fly to Berlin and fly back to Essex than to get the train from Sheffield to Essex, thus making an extremely valid and sound point about the incredibly horrible state and price of the British railway system and I think he should be saluted and carried shoulder high around the streets of Shenfield. Yes? This is not okay. I said, uh, he's not an anti-Inhoff, he's the uber-Inhoff. Like, I won't have it. This kid, now, oh, I shouldn't be too harsh because he's young. This kid is like 18 or something. He'll sound young. But he's, he's precocious enough to get in front of the BBC cameras. And boy called, boy, man called Jordan Cox, who apparently is a, is a deals and coupons blogger. He's 18, isn't he? <laughs> he's a deals and coupons blogger. And he, so he's one of these people who... Presumably, I haven't read his blog, but presumably he spends a lot of time going, look, you can get £5 off your Tesco delivery if you do on this site, yada, 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 whatever, brilliant. But he has done a fairly extraordinary thing of saying, hang on a minute, I can get home to Essex from this hotel in Sheffield uh, cheaper by taking a flight out to Berlin, having a lonely, lonely lunch on your own and coming, taking a flight back to Stansted uh, in order to get home to Essex. I mean... You just can't do that to prove your point. Everyone knows trains are expensive, so don't just chuck in a bit of carbon-munching short-haul flight to prove your point. I, I don't know where to start with this guy. Well, so you're being very, very unfair, right? No, so I'm he, not. You are. He said, he said, and I'm quoting here, obviously it isn't for everyone. Some people will just want to go home. <laughs> yeah, go home. Go home to your parents. They'll be worried sick. And he said the scenery in Berlin was ten times better than any train ship would have been. So you're being very, very unfair. What's wrong? Why not? If if you're a deals and consumer blogger and you're only 18 years old, and let's face it, haven't got a girlfriend probably, um, what's wrong with having a day out, saving a bit of money, going to Berlin, checking it out and coming back? What's he done wrong? What's wrong is taking short-haul flights that you've absolutely no reason to take. Yeah, but I'm an avid traveller, and when I found out that I could actually travel to a bucket list country that I've always wanted to visit and actually save money and get back home, which was the main point of me actually going from Sheffield to Essex. Like, you, you and I have talked about this. Taking flights is not the biggest evil in the world, obviously. Sometimes it's the only thing you can do. But where there are alternatives, it makes sense for the planet, which, in case you hadn't noticed, is burning, to, take, to, to, to use the alternatives, to take low-carbon alternatives. Don't just use a short-haul flight to make a petty point. And do you know what really annoyed me? Because you can tell I'm not that annoyed so far. But what really annoyed me is that he even went on to confront this by saying, flying isn't very environmentally friendly, but I checked. And, you know, the planes were quite fully booked, so I would have gone anyway. He's right. He's not right. We've talked about this before. He's totally right. He's not totally right. He is totally right. That argument doesn't work because if everyone made that argument, you would always have full flights going everywhere. But it does work because he was specifically choosing flights that were very, very cheap, which was the point. And if the flight is very, very cheap, it is what we call in the industry a loss leader, which means that it's designed to attract people to flying and then you keep them and then you price them out later. So those planes absolutely would have gone anyway and they were going to lose money anyway. And all Mr. Fanny Face here has done is <laughs> take a seat on one that was going to fly anyway. So I don't actually think he's a climate terrorist. He's just a dick. <laughs> 
What if everyone does this now? What if everyone goes, do you know what? I'm going to get home from Leicester or wherever it was, Sheffield to, uh, to Essex, and I'm going to fly via Berlin. Well, I'll tell you what would happen if everyone did it now. Two things would happen. Firstly, the price of the flights would go up. And secondly, the train companies would be obliged to bring the price of the trains down. So no, actually, if everyone, no, so if everyone did do it now, Mr. Jordan Cox would have won and his point would have been proved. And exactly because not everyone does it now, he was able to do it in the first place. You have no evidence that the train companies would be forced to bring their prices down. They would if nobody was using the trains because they were all flying Berlin and the only way you had to do it was to attract people by making it cheaper. Of course they would. So are you saying are you saying that actually he's making a valid point? Of course he's making a valid point. He's doing it in a dickish way and I I hate the fact that at age 18 he's so confident and sure of himself because I sure as hell wasn't and indeed am not now he's he's making a valid point Um, the trains are massively expensive it shouldn't ought to be cheaper to fly all the way to Berlin have a sausage and fly all the way back than it is to get the train and the fact that it is is something frankly that maybe it does need people doing slightly dickish things to go and expose Um, yeah all right. so he's you know he's gone and pumped loads of carbon into the air but frankly uh, no I salute him I salute you, Jordan Cox. You're welcome round my house for a sniff of some beer anytime you want. So, everyone take a deep breath and calm down. That, listener, is just about it for Sustainable 42. This is great being in the same room as you when you get yourself all hell up, because you do genuinely go a funny colour. <laughs> It's amazing. Thank you, listener, for listenifying. Thank you to Arabella for reading out the egregious eco-guff. And thank you, as always, to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts, ends and intertwinkles this here podcast. And a massive, massive thank you to the wonderful Samuel Mark with the C Low, uh, who came to talk to us about Europe and I thought talked very excellently indeed. If you want to drop us a note to say anything or just say hello, then you can do so in a number of ways. You can find us on Twitter at The Babble Wagon. Just search for Sustainababble on Facebook or send us a lovely little email at hello at sustainababble.fish. Thanks very much. I'll see you next week and I hope you get lots of Valentine's cards. You too. Bye. Bye. So she is the DEFRA secretary. Do you know what DEFRA stands for? I do. It is the Department for the Environment and Food, Farming and Rural Affairs. <laughs> you don't know what it stands for. It's food. Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Yeah, that's what I thought. Why well, did I correct myself? Because you're an idiot.